want to make a podcast, let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters. And it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode number 30. Altitude. Altitude. Tower to my stretches. Release you. Runway 4 left. Wind 040 at 5. Clear for takeoff. Seat tied. Altitude is eyes. We're clear for takeoff. Clear for the airspace. Fire protector. Firehouse for fighter pilots. So everyone is sitting around, you're there 24 7 for those seven days. And if at any moment a horn goes off, you and the other pilot and the maintainers that are there will go out and get your jets airborne as quickly as possible. And you have no idea what you're taking off into. It could be a foreign uh, military. Uh, it could be a civilian issue, it could be a terrorist attack, it could be all sorts of things. So you always got to be ready for whatever those things are. What's up and thanks for listening. I'm John Waters, call sign Rain. I'm a former Air Force F-16 pilot. Today we're going to be talking to John McFarlane, call sign Slap. He is an Air National Guard F-15 pilot and he is also the founder of bogeydope.com. For all you who are listening, who aspire to be a fighter pilot or a guard or reserve, heavy pilot, whatever it might be, if you want to fly in the Air National Guard, the reserves, or even active duty, bogeydope.com. He has a team of professionals over there that guide you through the process. They list hiring boards. It is a perfect resource for those who are looking to figure out how to become a guard or reserve pilot. And as we'll discuss today, they're expanding to offer a lot more services. We'll talk about Bogeydope, but we'll also talk about his eagle career and a few stories that go along with it before you get rolling into that if you're enjoying the podcast like i always say if you can take the 10 seconds to go over to itunes hit the five-star review and just leave a review with a couple words that helps the podcast out and grow if you're looking for additional content slap left us with a there i was story which is exclusive to patreon supporters you can swing over to patreon.com backslash the afterburn podcast to be able to hear that and support the show. Patreon supporters also, depending on the level, get access to free swag, including leather patches, stickers, hats, and coffee mugs. And depends on what level you join at, but you're going to get that kind of swag. You can check those tiers out and what's available there. And then finally, if you're interested in watching these, slowly getting into YouTube, youtube.com backslash the afterburn podcast. You can see these episodes as well as some other videos. But with all that being said, let's get into the episode with Slap. Well, Slap, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Excited to have you on and uh, talk a little aviation with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, before you're rolling, will you tell everyone, give it the 30 second elevator pitch of who you are, kind of how you got there and what you're doing today? Yeah, sure. So, my name is John McFarlane, call sign SLAP. I'm an F-15 pilot, International Guard, uh, also a major airline pilot and founder of boogiedope.com. Uh, sort of my clip notes version of my background is a little bit non-conventional compared to most. So went to the International Guard, 
which basically entails applying directly to fighter squadrons and was fortunate enough to get picked up by an F-15 unit that sent me to pilot training, went down to Shepard Air Force Base for NGIP, went there and then the F-15B course in Clem Falls, and then been pretty much full-time Air National Guard flying fighters ever since. I did one year where I was part-time to join the airlines. Uh, that's also where I had a bunch of free time where I was able to start bogeydope.com, which I'm sure we'll talk to you here in a little bit. Uh, but then since then, went back full-time uh, flying fighters right now, just waiting for sort of the dust to settle post-COVID uh, before going back and, and doing the civilian stuff. Dude, living the American dream, I would say. Flying fighters. That's right. Just getting after it. So for those who don't know, will you tell me and the listeners a little bit about what the Air National Guard is? And I'm sure you can speak a little bit to the reserve and what the difference is between those two entities and active duty. Yeah, sure. So uh, active duty, as you're well aware, is what most people think of when they think of the Air Force. So someone that goes to the U.S. Air Force Academy, ROTC or OTS, and then they go and they, for a pilot, will get a 10-year uh, pilot training commitment on the back end of once they earn their wings. So really you're looking at 11 to 12 years of full-time military service before you're able to go out and do anything else. Uh, throughout that 10 or 12 years, you're going to have different assignments every two or three years that, that change your location, potentially change your aircraft, uh, change what your job is. A lot of that you might have some say in, but a lot of it you won't. It's just sort of luck and timing, uh, which I'm sure you could speak to a lot more than, than I can. For the Air National Guard and the reserves, it's a little bit different from a um, pilot applicant that is just getting started in that for me, I was a civilian uh, fresh out of college, decided I wanted to join and fly fighters. And so I applied specifically uh, to fighter units uh, throughout the country. There's about 25 different Air National Guard uh, fighter units around the, the country. And if you get selected from those units, you still have to go to pilot training, you still have to pass everything in pilot training. But since they hired you, you're going to go back to that unit. And the only way you can go back to that unit is to fly their aircraft. So essentially, you are now being selected to go fly whatever aircraft they fly, whether it's fighters, heavies, tankers, UAVs, whatever the case is, uh, and you're gonna to go to training and then come back and you're still gonna have that 10 year commitment post getting your wings, but the difference here is you can fulfill that either full-time or part-time or a combination uh, of both throughout your career. So really the big difference when you look at it from a pilot or individual perspective is just control. You have control to go full-time, go part-time, pick the state you want to live in, pick the unit you want to fly with, uh, and have the ability to stay there and do that mission for your entire career instead of having to move around every few years and that kind of stuff. From an overarching mission standpoint, one of the main differences for Air National Guard is it is sort of a state-run mission. So my commander-in-chief is actually the governor of my state first and then the president, which is a little bit different. And so uh, you'll get a lot of units that are doing state missions for fighters that's primarily seeing alert and defending the homeland. Uh, for cargo units, that might be more of like providing disaster relief during hurricanes or forest fires and whatnot. And then when you switch over to the reserve side, the difference there is uh, it is still a federal entity, not necessarily a state entity, and you're there primarily to back up the active duty. So. Both the Guard and Reserve will supplement the active duty. So it's not active duty guys are always deploying overseas. I've deployed multiple times uh, in support of uh, whatever sort of worldwide missions we're doing. But the difference is our deployments are typically a little bit shorter uh, and you have a little bit more flexibility in how long you're there because you also will have a civilian job that you need to maintain during that time. 
that's one concept I did not grasp, you know, going through ROTC and then getting a pilot slot. I first realized what the guard was or learned about the guard and reserve when I showed to pilot training and there were four or five dudes in my class who already knew what they were going to go fly. So that's a concept that guys like me just didn't get, which would have been nice. I think the guard provides a nice blend between, hey, you can go out and do a civilian career as well as fly jets in the Air Force. There's obviously some give and take with that and pros and cons. But like I said, if you're like one of those people looking to go, hey, I want to live in spot X, Y, or Z or fly plane A, B, or C, you can go out there and do it. It kind of gives you the best of both worlds. That said, though, there are times when those units either change or transition platforms or they lose their mission. Can you speak to that a little bit? Uh, well, sure. I mean, that that happens in the active duty as well with, with the evolution of different airframes or the sunset of others, uh, that those occasional changes will happen. Uh, the difference between the active duty and the guard in that capacity, though, is if you're an active duty unit that potentially shuts down or changes missions, they just move you to a different active duty unit and that's it. For a guard or reserve unit that shuts down or changes missions, you sort of have a choice of, do I stay there and change missions with them? Uh, or do you move someplace else? Uh, for me, that that actually happened early on. My first assignment was flying fighters uh, up in Montana. Uh, at the time, they were a Viper unit that just transitioned to Eagles. And then shortly after I got there, they got told that they were going to transition to C-130s, which is what they fly right now. And so fortunately, I had the support of leadership at the time that gave me the green light to uh, go transfer to another unit so I could continue to fly fighters. But a lot of those guys stayed there and, and were former fighter pilots, pilots that are flying cargo right now and, and loving it because the location was more important to them than the actual mission uh, was of, of flying fighters. Uh, and now I'm with a unit that will soon be transitioning to the F-35. So I'll go through sort of that aircraft transition too. So I'll sort of experiencing on both ends of changing locations and also changing missions uh, throughout my career. So that happens occasionally, but it's relatively rare. Yeah, if you're one of those guys who likes variety, it's kind of a nice thing to have, at least the way I look at it. Can you talk a little bit about your process getting hired? Because that is one thing that I, I get asked a lot, like, hey, how do I go fly fighters in South Carolina or Alabama, or wherever it might be? You got to go out there and rush a unit. Can you talk about that process, the complexities of it, and just kind of a broad brush how that works? Because for those who are listening, bogeydope.com, we'll get to it here in a little bit, but that's going to be a big helpful piece that I think if you're interested in doing it, you're going to go there. So if you can tell us just a little bit about what your process was like. Sure. So reality is that that is where Bogado came from, just in the sense that the process is not well advertised and it's, it is confusing. And we were trying to sort of consolidate that information to make it easier for people to, to find the information going forward. So the, the big picture overview of, of how the process works is that each individual guard squadron, at least, uh, is sort of its own organization. Uh, it does its own hiring, which means that it follows its own HR policy. It handles application process its own way. It will advertise uh, openings its own way. And so what happens in Alabama, as you said, is going to be different than in South Carolina, uh, even though they're the same jets that both fly F-16s, but the process of which they hire people might be slightly different. And that, that is true for all 175 different flying squadrons in the Guard and Reserve. So there's a lot of opportunity out there, but also a lot of different ways of doing business. The requirements for all these, at least for a UPT slot, uh, are generally the same. So you got to take the AFOQT, so Air Force Officer Qualifying Test. Uh, you got to take the TBAS, which is basically a hand-eye coordination test. 
and then you're sending a cover letter, a resume, you're more likely going to have some sort of civilian flying experience with a private pilot at least uh, on there. And then a couple of our little cats and dogs here and there, letters of recommendation, and then college transcripts. But that's about it. But they, they'll all be in different formats as far as some will want it in a PDF version, some will want a paper copy, some will want video uh, stuff to go with it. And so it's all just a little bit different. And what Bogudope tried to do is just consolidate all that information. So you see exactly what units are hiring when, what they require, and when their application deadlines are going to be. So that didn't exist. What I was going through was basically a spreadsheet of all that information. But once you send in your application data, uh, you might also rush the unit, as you mentioned. Rushing unit, the, the term rush is basically from you know Greek life, if you went to a college with uh, fraternities and sororities, of trying to put a face with a name, allowing people to meet you, uh, understand who you are, what your story is, and, and if you'd be a good fit for them culturally, because when they hire somebody, they're really looking to hire somebody for the next 20 years. And so it's, it's sort of joining a family in a team atmosphere that you're going to become a part of. And so that's sort of part of the application process as well. It's different for every squadron as far as how they handle that. But combine those things together, and then eventually they're going to narrow down a field of, of a lot of applicants down to about 10 to interview. And when they interview, at that point, it's, it's who is really sort of the best fit for that culture going forward. They might have one slot available per year, uh, typically for fighter squadrons, that's the case. For heavy units, since it's a crew aircraft that does have twice as many pilots in there, they'll typically hire a few more uh, throughout the year. Uh, but then if you're hired, then they say, hey, you got the job, but now you got to pass your medical security background check and all pilot training. You can still wash out potentially. Uh, but if you don't, then you come back to that unit uh, going forward. So approach this at the beginning, standard fire pilot answer applies probably to most of this, which is it depends. Totally. Yeah. But in your scenario, how long was it like, from the time you graduated college to the time you're walking in the door at pilot training? Well, I got sort of delayed a little bit uh, for me. So I had what I thought was everything was lined up perfect to walk into one of these spots right like before I even graduated college. So at the time I was living in North Dakota, middle of nowhere. Uh, and my first flight instructor, uh, when I started doing my civilian ratings, told me about the guard. I had no idea what the guard was. Just like most people sound way too good to be true. And he started telling me about it. And as soon as I heard about it, I knew that's exactly what I wanted to do. And so the first place I applied was the South Dakota Air National Guard, uh, right next door flying F-16s and was fortunate enough to get picked up. Um, and then while waiting for someone to call me and, and tell me that, uh, I was going off the pilot training actually got a call from their commander at the time saying that I've been medically disqualified uh, for a, a shoulder injury uh, in college playing baseball. And so I was like, holy crap, had no idea that was going to be a disqualifying thing. I had to start the whole process over again, had to go get surgery. So I get a waiver to essentially start all over. And then after I started over, that was another two year process or so to get picked up again afterwards. I was fortunately able to get picked up by an F-15 unit after that and, and start the whole process over. So for me, it went from, you know, starting applications junior year, my college year to going to pilot training when I was like 25 uh, kind of thing. So older compared to the active duty side of things where guys are leaving straight from college but it is absolutely not uncommon. And for a lot of people that we help out Bogey Dope, a lot of people are finding out about this maybe a little late or whatever the case is. You never know when the bug is going to hit you 
And so we help a lot of people that are 27, 28, up to 33 uh, is sort of the age cutoff right now for UBT of, of guys getting in and, and wanting to serve. So all I heard in that entire thing was your dreams were crushed of flying the greatest fighter in the world, which is the Viper. So God, I, knew, uh, I knew you were going to say something <laughs> foolish like that. That's the same. Destiny knew softball. that my skills were uh, were better utilized than in an air superiority fighter. Yeah, well, we're about to talk about the mission of the the Eagle here because I haven't had anyone on the podcast yet talk about the Eagle, but still, kind of, uh, what have you guys? I want to talk about Bogey Dope a little bit more in the process. What is the oldest person you've seen go through and get hired by a unit? Have you seen anyone get age waivers? Is that a thing? Yeah, so age waivers are, are actually quite common. Uh, so the the max age to go to pilot training in the Air Force recently changed from 30 to 33. And so, uh, and the reason I changed that was because they were basically rubber stamping all age waiver approvals anyway. And so there's like, you know what, let's just raise the age uh, or max age on there. And that way we'll have to deal with less age waivers. Now, that being said, there's still people that are going to be over 33 when they start UBT and potentially need an age waiver. And I, in my experience, have never seen anyone get denied that. Really, it's just a matter of can you convince a unit to hire you if you're going to be a little bit older when there's more than likely much younger applicants that are just as qualified um, than you and kind of thing. And so as the word gets out more and more about these guard and reserve opportunities, there's more and more applicants, which means that there's just more opportunities for squadrons to hire someone that maybe doesn't require more paperwork. Uh, on there. So it's not a difficult thing to get. Probably the oldest person I've seen uh, truly get hired and get an age waiver is 35 uh, out there, which means that they're not even starting UPT until like 36, 37. So that's a pretty pretty old person getting started in the grand scheme of, of this career field. Uh, but if the Air Force is like, hey, if you guys want to, to hire this person, then who are we to stop you as long as the person can make it through? So is that a, that's an Air Force level waiver? It's not the reserves or the Guard Bureau that owns that? Uh, well, it'll be an independent, it'll be independent to that specific branch per se. So like the National Guard okay. Bureau or the U.S. Air Force or the Air Force Reserve would be the one that would approve that. Uh, but essentially, especially for a Guard unit specifically, it's more of like the unit is signed off on this person. And so if they are willing to submit an age waiver for somebody, it is very unlikely that the big brother Air Force will turn that down just based on the fact of, hey, if that's the person you want, then you can have them. As long as they can pass everything, you can get them. Gotcha. Yeah, it's, I know it's definitely a process, but there's so many young guys and gals out there that are trying to like navigate it. And again, bogeydope.com. I found your website a few years ago. I was like, man, this is really handy because you have all the information you need there as far as when the hiring boards are. Because again, like you mentioned, every unit is different. So you have to go find their website. It's in a different spot on the website. If it's even there, you guys have put up there, hey, this is when the board is, the contact, as well as a lot more information. If we, before we kind of, I want to talk about your career, but before we kind of transition to that, if there was one piece of advice you could give to a young person or an old person who's going down this path and starting to rush units, what would that be? Uh, well, like you said before, it all depends. It depends on that person's background, but the earlier someone can get started, the better. Um, and what I mean by that is even if you can start right now, if you're in college and you recognize that this is the path you want to go down, uh, there are a lot of different ways of doing it. And, and right now we focus on guard and reserve opportunities, but we'll be expanding out to 
active duty opportunities, not just in the Air Force, but Marine Corps, Army, Navy, that kind of stuff. Because we recognize that not everyone either wants to do the Guard and Reserve or can get a slot in the Guard and Reserve as it's becoming more and more competitive. And so if this is something that you want to do, start getting the information now about the best path for you and, and, the, and the goals that you have uh, out there, because these things are becoming very competitive uh, down there and luck and timing will be a big part of it. So if you can be ready and have the most competitive application you could possibly have ready to go and you just happen to be you know at the right place at the right time that's where these opportunities happen you know i was hired at a unit that had no connection thought i had zero chance of getting hired there because it wasn't from the state or area or uh, any of that kind of stuff and it just so happened that i was lucky enough that the right people saw my applications and that made an impression on them that year uh, whereas the next year or against other applicants it maybe wouldn't have and so uh, making sure that you are ready as for as many opportunities to get picked up as possible is the best way of optimizing your chances to do that. Gotcha. And again, it depends, but uh, expectation management here, I think is a big piece of it. I mean, your timeline, if had it worked out, you going to South Dakota would have been pretty quick based on the people I've talked to and the buddies I've had that have gone from college or job into UPT and into flying. What do you think, or can you even say, like, what is like an average timeline from like when you start this to when you're winged? It again, it depends, as you mentioned, but um, I would say on average, from what we see, probably the the average age of most guard or reserve UPT applicants going to pilot training will probably start around age like 27 ish kind of thing, and so. You'll get some guys that have full-fledged civilian careers uh, or airline pilots already that decide that this is something they want to do. They didn't realize it was an opportunity before. They thought the only way they could have done it was going to the academy. And, and unless you know you want to uh, fly and serve in the military when you're in high school, you know the academy isn't the way to do it. And the ROTC maybe isn't a way to do it unless you knew about that in college. And so OTS slots for the active duty are very hard to come by too. And there's very few opportunities to, to do that depending on the year. And so some people may find out about this late, which isn't uncommon for Guard and Reserve uh, applications. Uh, or you might get some people that are, are already enlisted in that particular unit that were enlisted, took a little bit longer to get their college degree because they were balancing military obligations uh, with getting their degree. And now they're graduating at 24, 25 and just getting picked up after a year or two of applying um, and then starting from there. So. Uh, the big thing to take away from this is it's very rare to get picked up on like your first swing of the bat. Most people are doing shotgun applications to every unit that interests them. If you want to be a fighter pilot, apply to every single fighter unit. If you want to fly heavies, apply to every single heavy unit. Uh, if you don't care, apply to everything, right? If you want to fly only in one region of the United States, apply only to that region of the United States, but apply to all those units that are available out there just to increase your chances because more than likely, this is going to be a couple year process. Uh, and a few people will get in on the first try, but more than likely, you're gonna be applying several places, interviewing several places. And then fortunately, you know, again, luck and opportunity will intersect and uh, you'll be able to, to get picked up. Yeah, no doubt. There's a lot to digest there and to go through. And again, bogeydope.com, that's a great resource that Slap and his team's put together to help guide you through the process if you're looking to pursue the Guard and Reserve, and then expanding into different branches and different careers. So excited to see what you guys are going to do with that. And I'm sure it's going to come back up in the remainder of this podcast. But I want to transition a little bit 
and back up to you going through pilot tra- uh, pilot training and then into the C model. What was that transition like from civilian life, kind of getting, I imagine, getting on orders, going through OTS, and then probably have some in-between time before you're able to go to pilot training? Yeah, so um, before I got picked up, I was actually a civilian flight instructor. And so I had quite a bit of civilian flight time uh, before I went to uh, pilot training. When I got picked up back in the day, they had the Academy of Military Science. That was the commissioning route for Air National Guard. That no longer exists. That uh, was a very gentlemanly course. (laughs) Six weeks of intense uh, training. Uh, Barely knew how to salute at the end of it. Like it it was not exactly a very push it up course, but uh, that's where I got my commission. And then uh, the great thing, sort of pros and cons of of the guard unit uh, mentality is when guard units are assigned a pass slot, let's say Montana in this case, Montana was knew that it had one UBT pilot slot available. It knew exactly when that pilot slot was gonna start. It knew exactly when the train cycle was gonna end. And so like it was all very mapped out. And that means that the, the bad part of it is you might have to wait for about a year or so from the day that someone calls you and says that you're hired to the day that you actually start pilot training. Um, but once the, the cycle starts, like it is like all lined up. So a lot of the active duty guys that were in the same base that were fresh graduates of the academy or ROTC cadets like you uh, might be on casual status, just waiting to start pilot training at the base for up to a year before they even started. And for me, it was going from one event straight to the next, straight to the next, straight to the next. And so it was much more efficient uh, as far as that goes uh, on there. So once I showed up, uh, went straight. We were the first T6 class uh, at Shepard uh, back in the day. So that was sort of a new experience. Uh, it was primarily all Europeans. We had, I think, four or five Americans in our class. And the rest of it were all um, Germans, Dutch, and Italians, which was sort of a cool opportunity. Um, and then went straight to the T38, stayed there for IFF, and then went out to uh, Klamath Falls, which was a lot of fun as well. So it was it was a very smooth process once everything started. Was the C-Model B course, was it only at Klamath Falls when you went through or they're still flying at Tyndall? Uh, it was only at Klamath when I started. So Tyndall like just shut down and transitioned to the Raptor B course uh, pretty much right when I started going through. Okay. And so you go through the B course and then you're moving on to back to your unit in Montana. What was the, from the B course to being a, well, here's a, actually a question that I'm really curious about. Did you show up to your unit as a wingman, as a second lieutenant? Um, that's a good question. If I was a first lieutenant, I was like a brand, like spanking new first lieutenant. So I think that there's probably a decent chance that I pinned on as a first lieutenant while in the B course. But okay. But my whole time at Montana, I was lieutenant the entire time. So like I was a fresh first yeah. lieutenant, if that was the case. So uh, there's a good chance that I may have still been a second lieutenant. I'm not entirely sure. Well, the reason I asked, right before I was leaving Shaw, we had a couple like second lieutenants show up. I think they were second lieutenants for like two or three days, but it was like this mythical beast you'd never seen before because the pipeline takes so long to go through pilot training, especially active duty. Like you said, I was a casual lieutenant for 15 months. So like no way was I going to show up anywhere as a second lieutenant outside of pilot training. But the guard with it being so streamlined, they're paying for your time. So I was curious if they had that efficiency down because well the real mythical part is finding the the lieutenant flight lead so getting back to the unit early enough and actually going through an upgrade and leading a formation as lieutenant those things are 
are rare, but, but happen based on that efficiency that we talked about, which is nice. Right place, right time. You know, that's what it's all about. Exactly. Exactly. So how many lieutenants did you, or were you the sole lieutenant up there at the time or was there, I don't even know, did the 15, did it have TFI? Cause in Viper guard units, especially nowadays and reserve units, it is not uncommon to be filled with lieutenants from the active duty side. We've, we've pumped a bunch of active duty lieutenants into the guard and reserve unit because there's a lot of experience. So, you know, old guys flying around are able to share their knowledge and then they have young guys to lead around. But was that going on in the, at Montana or was everything kind of wrapping up? Uh, so to answer your first part of the question, I was not only the first lieutenant or the only lieutenant there, but the next closest person in rank was a major. So like there wasn't <laughs> anyone, I mean, the guard, uh, for those that don't know, is a much older organization. Typically, that's where a lot of experience comes. The majority of people in guard units <clears throat> do not go through UBT the way that I do. The majority of them come from active duty and transition to the guard. So they're already 12 or 13 year vets at that point. Uh, compared to me being, you know, fresh blood uh, out there. And so as the only lieutenant that had shown up in years to that squadron, you got a lot of attention. I uh, got to, to make a lot of corn and clean the bar and all sorts of other stuff to uh, to make their lives easier, uh, which is a lot of fun, uh, though, in a lot of different ways. And so to answer your second part of that question, as far as the TFI stuff, at that particular unit, there wasn't a whole lot of TFI going on in the Eagle community, with the exception of Montana was weird in the sense that they were a Viper unit that recently transitioned to the Eagle. And so they, they didn't have their own weapons officer yet. And so they had an active duty weapons officer over there just trying to help with that transition. Um, but now in my current unit, uh, TFI is, is going to be way more, way more, way and way more prevalent, uh, just in a sense of, you know, it sounds like it's, it's common in the Viper community as well, but for the Eagle, it's sort of sunsetting right now. At least the C model is sunsetting active duty wise. There's only three active duty squadrons right now, and, and they're supposed to be shutting down at any moment uh, to make way for F-35 and that kind of stuff. And so because there's not a whole lot of F or F-15 active duty assignments right now, those are primarily getting farmed out to the guard just to keep those guys current qualified. Uh, so when they are able to transition into something else, that they're at least, you know, we have fighter pilots on the books ready to do that. So. Right now, I think we have four TFI guys, which is pretty common among the the Eagle Guard units uh, out there, and, and I don't think that's going away anytime soon. Gotcha. Being the only, so this is an aspect too. I think is worth talking because being the only lieutenant. So a lot of people don't get right if you haven't been in a fighter squadron. Like, what is your role as a lieutenant in the fighter squadron? Your role is to do whatever someone tells you to do. Uh, so your your main role, uh, all joking aside, is to figure out how to become lethal and credible in that particular airplane. So if you're not doing something, your job is to be studying and figuring out different tactics and that kind of stuff. And I'm assuming it's relatively same or similar uh, in a heavy community, whatever those tactics are, but certainly in a fighter squadron, your job is to learn as much as you can because there's a lot to learn. Uh, when you're not doing that, the expectation is that you are sort of maintaining you know, cleanliness and culture within the squadron. And that typically is is done with a job called a snacko. So you are the snack officer. So here you are as a brand new officer. You're in charge of a, you know, 30 or $50 million aircraft and can go cause death and destruction to all of your uh, country's enemies. But your main job is to make sure you have fresh popcorn and beer and soda and snacks for all the other guys that are there. Um, and it's 
it's sort of a thankless job, but it's an important job in the squadron just to maintain morale and, and show that you can have an attention to detail and, and keep things sort of going. So uh, it's one of these things that I'm sure you can attest to, too. Like, you don't realize how good you have it until you're not doing it anymore, but a brand new wingman snacko is literally one of the best jobs you're ever going to have in the Air Force because everything after that starts to become a lot more responsibility, a lot more preparation, a lot more work, a lot more email uh, on there. And so at the time, you don't really realize it. But if I could go back to being in a wingman snacko now, life would be glorious. No joke. I mean, it is not a whole lot of fun making popcorn, making coffee, and it is a thankless job. No one is going to thank you for doing it. If you mess it up, everyone will point out your flaws. Oh, yeah. But it's your whole role in life is just to become a killing machine, the best killing machine possible, and to make popcorn and fly fast jets. It doesn't get any better than that. But it's one of those things that people lose focus or they just like yeah. always want to go to the next thing. And it doesn't get any better as you move up the rank and, and <laughs> just yeah. be a wing snacko. That's for, or like, you know, a major snacko. That's probably the best. Oh man. That's what I look forward to when I transition to F-35 of just completely absolve myself of all responsibility and just learn how to fly a new airplane would be great. Yeah. That's, uh, it's, it's one of those things you take for granted. I always thought going through a TX later in life would be fun because it's purely like all the responsibility, all the emails, all the stuff that, really doesn't matter the stuff you jo- you know you joined not or you didn't join to do goes away it's purely just there to fly so when you're going through those courses don't take them for granted i would say yeah okay so uh can you talk to me a little bit about the mighty eagle air superiority what what is that what is the primary mission of the eagle uh what's well, just that it's air dominance air superiority um you know, it's one of these missions that people don't talk to right now. Certainly in the last 20 years, it's not something that people have really cared too much about because we've had the privilege, if you want to consider it a privilege anyway, the opportunity to go fight in battle spaces that, that no one is worried about having a bomb dropped on your head if you're an Army, Infantry, or, or Marine Corps guy on the ground uh, kind of thing. And so it's one of those things that people don't think about until you're in a contested environment in which you have enemy aircraft flying over our troops on the ground. It becomes really important that we own that battle space. We own the air up there. And, and it hasn't been something we've had to fight for for quite a while, uh, not really since Desert Storm or Operation Allied Force uh, back in the late 90s. So it's one of these things that we train to. It's very dynamic. It's uh, it's always evolving. Our our enemies are evolving incredibly quickly, and so we need to evolve our tactics with that, which makes it a lot of fun and a lot or like a very challenging mission. And so, our mission with the F-15 right now, which is again an aging fighter that the F-22 replaced uh, several you know ten years plus ago. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't make enough F-22s to replace all F-15s, so we're trying to sort of limp across the finish line with this sort of older technology, still very capable, but hard uh, to fight against some of the more modern threats that are out there right now. And so we're doing our best to find different creative ways to uh, to own the battle space, own the air above any country that we want to, uh, to sort of fight if we need to. Um, and then from a domestic standpoint within the Air National Guard, the other role, the F-15 is Homeland Defense. And that's not just F-15s, that'd be F-22s, F-16s as well within the Guard of seeing alert, waiting for uh, a horn to go off and potentially scrambling to the jets, getting airborne and and getting airborne into who knows what. Could be the next 9-11, could be a drug runner, could be a person with an emergency. Uh, so that domestic mission is also very dynamic and interesting about protecting the skies over the U.S. 
Yeah, it's funny. My cousin, he lives up in Philly and he sent me some pictures this past weekend. And at, well, he's some national park and just a bunch of vipers were raging overhead. And the president was up there. So I think there was like four or five guys that violated the TFR flying around. So they got intercepted. That's peace. That's the alert mission. And obviously in those scenarios, it was pilots who were just completely clueless that there was a temporary flight restriction. They violated it. And then, you know, the police, I say that with air quotes, I guess it's on camera now, I can say with air quotes, showed up, right, and escort those guys. But like you said, it could be the next 9-11, it could be someone with hostile intent, and it's there to protect the homeland. So can you talk to me a little bit about the alert mission? Like how often, like you, as a Lion fighter pilot in the squadron, do you have to sit alert a month? What does that day in the life of look like an alert pilot? It'll, it'll sort of depend on the unit that you're with uh, as far as how often you do it and what that schedule looks like. Every unit's going to be a little bit different. Uh, for my particular unit, our alert site is not co-located with our actual like day-to-day squadron uh, airport and everything like that. And so because we have to travel, we go to alert and due to some COVID changes uh, as far as mitigating COVID exposure and that kind of stuff, right now we will sit seven-day alert tours. So we'll go TDY down to our alert facility. We'll be there for seven days. And what that essentially means is you are in this compound, sort of a base within a base uh, that you're not allowed to leave. So you get groceries for the entire time you're there. And uh, you're just sort of hanging out, working out, catching up on email, watching movies, just sort of occupying your time in sort of this white collar prison, if you will, <laughs> and uh, just waiting for a horn to go off. So I describe it to people often as a, uh, firehouse for fighter pilots so everyone is sitting around you're there 24 7 for those seven days and if at any moment a horn goes off you and the other pilot and the maintainers that are there will go out and get your jets airborne as quickly as possible and you have no idea what you're taking off into it could be a foreign uh, military uh, it could be a civilian issue it could be a terrorist attack it could be all sorts of things uh, out there and so you always got to be ready for whatever those things are um and, and that's sort of how our unit works. For other units, and probably a little bit more typical, is that their alert facility is going to be co-located with their actual guard base. And so now if you think about it, you have all your jets that you fly with on a normal basis for training, and then there'll be a couple of jets that'll be loaded up with live missiles and a live gun that will be sort of set aside for the alert mission. You'll have a couple of pilots that'll sort of be on alert status. And if the horn goes off, those are the two pilots that'll go out there and take off. But they're also more than likely swapping out on a daily basis or every couple of days, uh, keeping it a lot more, I don't know, routine, I guess, and not uh, so much burden on the family as far as being gone for seven days at a time. Uh, we're not doing it that often, though, for seven days. I mean, for us spreading out among the squadron, we're looking at maybe one seven-day tour for the quarter. Um, and then for our part-time guys, because with the Guard, you also have a bunch of guys that are civilian uh, employees. So they have their civilian obligation first before they can come do the military stuff. And so for those guys, they're doing it quite a bit less. They might sit one alert tour, you know, per half of a year. So maybe two alert tours total for the year, but the majority of it's picked up by the full-time guys. Gotcha. And you mentioned it's kind of like being in the firehouse, but I would like to maybe dive into just what that entails, because I don't know if people necessarily understand the fact that it could be three o'clock in the morning, that alarm goes off. And then a very short period of time later, you're potentially, you could be going supersonic, you know, going to chase someone down. So from the time the bell goes off to the time you're airborne, what, what is happening there? And then once the wheels are up, who like, how, how are you getting the information you need? And what does that look like? What are you doing to manage the formation? 
Yeah, so like you said, the, the horn could go off at any moment. Uh, there's actually inside the alert facility, there's almost like a stoplight uh, set of lights in there, red, yellow, and green. And you'll have a very loud horn that'll wake you up no matter what you're doing. Uh, and then you just go look at whatever color the light is. And that light will tell you essentially what you're going to do. If you get a green light, it is you are getting inside that jet as quickly as possible. So you might go from being dead asleep uh, to no kidding, going and putting a flight suit on and putting your boots on and your G suit and all your crap. And you have no idea what the deal is. And you're not really getting a whole lot of information because you don't have time to get that information. Your job is to get that jet airborne as quickly as possible. And so you're going from zero to very fast. Um, and it could be a disorienting kind of experience. Uh, but once you get the jet up, now you're taking several minutes of frantically trying to get strapped in and uh, getting all your systems on and everything working and having a safe jet. Uh, and then once you sort of realize that you have a safe jet, you might be able to sneak in a radio call here or there to figure out a little bit about what's going on. But even that's going to be very limited information as far as what's going on, as far as why you're scrambling. It's really going to be more of where the aircraft is located that you're going to go intercept. And so that at least gives you an idea of how far out you're going and that kind of stuff. And so once you get airborne, now you're going, um, you know, as fast as you can to get to that target. Um, and depending on what's going on, that might be authorized to go supersonic, which will happen on occasion. Uh, but if you do, it creates a pretty big, pretty big impact on the cities <laughs> below. Uh, so we've had several instances where we've had to scramble and, and go supersonic. And then like the chaos that causes afterwards is everyone hears a sonic boom and they think that there's an explosion in the city. And so like literally it'll like like topple the 911 network because all those people are calling in saying that there was an explosion in their neighborhood. And it's really just jets overhead uh, trying to go intercept some airplane that shouldn't be where they're supposed to be or whatever the case is. So um, anyway, and then once you get there, who knows what the situation is? It could be, again, a disruptive passenger in an airline. And your job is to make it so the airline passengers never see that you're there. Uh, it could be a drug runner. It could be a person in distress. Uh, we've had people that passed out when they're flying. And so you have essentially what they consider a derelict object, someone that isn't controlled the airplane. They've passed out due to hypoxia where the case is, and the airplane's just on autopilot. And you're essentially there following it around, making sure that it doesn't all of a sudden run out of gas and sort of dive bomb into a big city or something like that. And so um, that part of it is always a little of, you know, how creative can you get will be the, sort of the scenario that you might find yourself in. Yeah. I mean, if you watch the news, there's everything from the guy who just didn't know there was a TFR there to, I mean, Payne Stewart's a really famous, you know, former go I mean, passed away golfer, right? Who's, you know, jet, they all became a hypoxia and they crashed. And then I know I've heard one, I guess, past two years down the East coast where I think it crashed in the Bahamas, but yeah, I think they said they were hypoxic and, and passed out just on autopilot till it ran out of fuel. So you just yeah. never know what you're walking into. Yeah, we were, I know exactly what you're talking about. We yeah, were, we were okay. part of the going. Yeah. So I think yeah, all the guys down the coast were just passing them, passing off as you went. So again, you don't know what you're walking into. I guess much like a firefighter or a police officer. Um, but I know <laughs> the heart rate's got to be going fast and it definitely could be a very dynamic and stressful situation. And again, one that could be pretty unforgiving if you're doing that in the middle of the night and you just woke up, I think. Yeah. There's, there's actually a funny story that you might appreciate from your, uh, your air show circuit. So the very first time, uh, that I ever got scrambled was uh, down out alert and there was an air show going on. And so 
uh, we actually climbed up to the roof of our alert facility because we can't leave the, the facility when all this stuff's going on. And we're on like one extreme end of the base um, and the Thunderbirds are about to fly. And so we're like, oh, let's go check it out and we'll go sit on the, the roof and watch it. And one of the maintainers like climbs up the ladder and he's like, hey, sir, you got a phone call. You know, it's it's EADS or Eastern Air Defect Defense Sector wants to talk to you. So I pick up the phone and they're like, oh, hold on a second. They put me on hold and they put me on hold to hit the klaxon, to hit the horn go off. I'm like, oh, my God, you could have just told me on the phone. <laughs> and so I scrambled to the jet. It's the first real. I'm a lieutenant at the time. So my biggest thing is I just don't want to screw up. And you know this from being a fire pilot. Like yeah. one of the, your biggest motivation is just not looking like an idiot uh, among your, your bros and, and your peers. And so now I'm scrambling to the jet, trying to get all my crap on and get in the jet and I get started. And I was really proud of myself because I actually cranked the engine before my flight lead, who was an 06 uh, colonel I was sitting with. And I'm like, I'm going to get, I'm going to be right before him. This is awesome. But then something happened to my jet and I had to ground abort the jet because there was an engine issue when I started the second engine. And so now it is total chaos because now I have to go to a spare. The, the horn is still going off or the green light still flashing. Uh, and so I got to get airborne. But now I got to start all over, get all my crap out of the jet, go over to the spare and then hop in and get started. At this point, my flight lead is already taxied out and he's blasted off. And I am several minutes behind him, which now has you completely frazzled because you don't want to be the guy that's that's knocking airborne for the scramble. And so I eventually, you know, get back in there and, and get all this stuff going on. Well, meanwhile, as all this is going on, it stops the whole air show. And so the air boss or whoever the announcer is is now announcing to like these 100,000 spectators that there is a real world scramble going on. And uh, he announces that we're F-16s, which was a little bit insulting uh, at the time. But he's basically doing like the, hey, from the left, the Air National Guard on an alert scramble. And and there's actually a YouTube video up there. It's pretty funny because you see 100,000 heads uh, all turn to the left to watch my flight lead take off. And then they all sort of snap back after the first one, looking for the second one. And they don't realize that I'm like scrambling just to get the damn thing started and super frazzled. And so finally I get the second jet started. The radar is not working. I'm not in the, the Link 16 because uh, the crypto dumped. And so I'm just basically Cluedo. Just want to get airborne. Finally take off. Uh, we go intercept this airplane. As soon as the airplane sees that there's two fighters off its wing, it immediately starts talking to air traffic control. They sort of tell us to skip it and we're done for the like an easy intercept with all that chaos on the ground. And now as we present now, as we're told to RTB back to the field, the Thunderbirds are now flying. They're now doing their thing. And so sort of the cool thing is they told us to hold outside the airspace and we're watching the Thunderbirds with all their smoke on and everything like that from like the above. We're basically holding right above them, looking down at them doing their air show, which is sort of cool. But the Thunderbirds were also like the main the main attraction for that particular air show. And so now the air boss yeah. has these two fighters that are still airborne after the Thunderbirds land. And so as we're basically coming up to initial, um, you get, you know, whatever our name was at the time and the air boss comes in and I think our call sign was lucky, lucky two, one or something like that. Lucky two, one, this is air boss. You guys are cleared as fast as you want up initial. Typically we go up initial at 300 knots. He's just giving us <laughs> the, the approval to go as fast as we want because you got 100,000 people that want to see a show. And my flight lead is like, copy that. 
And then about three seconds later, he comes back and is like, lucky to one, you are cleared as fast and as low as you want to go. And here I am as this lieutenant, and I'm like, this is going to be awesome. Like, there's going to be so many videos America. of us doing, yeah, America. And it turns out when you're flying with an 06, he tends to follow the rules. And so we went right up initial at 2,000 feet and 300 knots, pitched out. It was the most terrifying landing <laughs> I've ever had because of all these judging eyes. Uh, watching, but um, anyway, that was my first alert scramble. It was terrifying, mainly out of ex- mainly out of fear of just screwing up in front of a lot of people. Yeah, not to mention, yeah, there's like a thousand video cameras that are like so sophisticated out there that they can yep. see your eyeballs while you're taking off landing. So no pressure whatsoever. <laughs> I love the fact too that the guy actually rang the Claxton while you're on the phone with him. Oh yeah, yeah, put me on hold so we can hit the button. Like, thanks, dude, appreciate it. <laughs> That's the epitome of so many things Air Force, but you know, <laughs> oh, I do want to so alert um, is obviously one mission set air superiority. That is the bread and butter. And obviously the alert mission ties into that, but I want to paint a picture too, for those listening day in the life of what it is like being a fighter pilot. If you're going out there to plan just a training mission, what does it look like the day before the day you're going to go fly and the day potentially after uh, depending on who's debriefing. Sure. Um, well, sort of like everything depends again, depends on who is, who is leading that mission and what the purpose of that mission is. Um, and then what kind of mission you're doing. So for the Eagle, you're going to do everything that's going to be air to air for the most part, uh, out there obviously. And so it could be anything as, as simple as a one B one BFM or basic fire maneuver sort of dog fighting, uh, kind of thing, which are very short missions, uh, and relatively short debriefs to could be something that could take a 12 to 14 hour debrief on the back end. So it really sort of depends on, on if it's an upgrade for someone going through or not. Uh, as an example, on Monday, I was the IP for a guy who just started his IP upgrade. Uh, and it was just a BFM, clean BFM going out there. But we also had three tankers uh, out there, which was great, except for I was flying defensive BFM the entire time. So flying as a defender for a fight, tank, fight, tank, fight, uh, it's sort of brutal on your neck uh, out there, as I'm sure you know. But for something like that, the guy who was leading it was going through an upgrade, which means that he is being evaluated on his ability to come up with a very formal, um, detailed brief that will take 60 minutes. And then he's going to give me that brief. I'm not going to say a thing uh, during the brief. I'm not going to ask any questions. He's just presenting exactly what we're going to do and trying to educate me on how we're going to do that well on there. Now, he might prepare for that brief for a day, day and a half. And he got academics beforehand. I mean, it goes a lot. A lot of work goes into presenting a really good product. uh, And that's a relatively simple mission for us as well. And so he'll present that. Then we'll go fly. Typically for a mission like that, it might only be a 45 minute or hour long flight, but because we had tankers in that particular day, it was about a two hour flight or two hour fight. And we were able to get 10 engagements that we fought in, came back, landed. And when we landed, now we started a very formal debrief, which a lot of times is not as formal, but for this guy was as an upgrade. And so going through all 10 of those fights and learning the lessons through there, and there's a formal process to sort of go through all the tapes and everything on there. We, we were there until about 11 o'clock at night and we, the brief started at seven o'clock in the morning. And that was a very simple uh, mission for us 
on there. And so that particular day was a very long day, especially for the guy going through the upgrade. Um, but on a typical day, it might be show up to the squadron for a brief at seven. You're going to go fly at nine. You're going to land at 1130. You're going to have a little bit of lunch and then debrief for a couple hours and be done around four, five o'clock and head home. Uh, if your non-flying job doesn't require you to do anything else. So it sort of depends. Every once in a while, we'll have a really long day. Most days are relatively um, predictable for the most part. Big question. When you guys transition to F-35, are you going to transition to whiteboards or still use chalk? Oh, in the Eagle community, there's there's no such thing as whiteboards. It's only chalk. But I'm, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Our, uh, we, just, we just had one of our old-time uh, weapon school uh, graduates just did his finny flight last week and, uh, we presented him with a chalkboard, uh, just for him. It was the last chalkboard that we have, hopefully. Yeah. I've, I, I think I was, yeah, Tyndall, it's probably four years ago and walked back in the vault and the Raptor squadron. And it's, you know, there's chalkboards and whiteboards. I guess it's like, you get to pick your flavor. That's like their way of transitioning yeah. to the whiteboard life. Yeah. Um, I've only done, I, I was red air for a weapon school for VX, Ride and there's eight red air and I can say that was probably the most painful shot val I've ever done, which was the as depicted Oof. times eight every minute, you know. So yeah. uh, it can be so it can be so thorough and there's a reason for it, right? That's where you're going to pull your your lessons learned. That's where you're going to get all the the nuggets of wisdom. And that's how you're going to be better. So there's a reason. It's not just a haze. It's part of a haze to a certain yeah. degree. But no, that's that's where you're going to learn is in the debrief and you're spending millions and millions of dollars creating these weapon systems, these being pilots. So you got to put forth the time and allocate the resources properly to get the most out of it, but it can be painful for those who don't know. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, it's, it's also when you think about the assets that are being provided for your training in that particular example, or a guy doing a four VX it's one guy's upgrade. Whoever the number one is, it's his upgrade. And he has eight jets on red air and another three on blue air. So there's 11 aircraft that are designated just for his training. I mean, everyone's going to get something out of the training, but for him, it's, it's mainly like, what can he learn out of this? The brief, the debrief, the execution, all that kind of stuff. And so when you start putting price tags on each one of those, you know, the hourly rate of that aircraft and paying for the pilot, paying for the maintainers and the parts and the gas and all that kind of stuff. Like it is really amazing as far as when you really sit down and think about how much money and resources are being uh, dedicated to making someone lethal and making someone really good in this profession. It takes a lot of work, a lot of effort and a lot of reps to, uh, to make that happen. Yeah. I talked, I had an, two episodes about Mezer, who was an F-16 pilot, a shawl had a mishap and he was uh, killed, unfortunately, but one piece of that factor, right. And we've all been there when either you're, you're, it's your upgrade, you're getting something out of the sortie and you're the focal point, whether your jet breaks or you mess something up and it weighs on you because you know, one, this might be the only opportunity you get to do it, or you might have to wait weeks or months for another opportunity for that type of upgrade ride. Um, so there's a lot of the pressure that goes into it, but it factors in, like you said, I don't know if you just say an average cost of $10,000 an hour to operate plane X, right. And you're going to go out there and fly a 1.5 and you got 10 planes out there, but not to mention, you know, you have 10 other pilots who have allocated the same number of man hours of preparing, briefing, stepping, flying, but then all the maintainers, right. There's, there's probably 40 to hundred maintainers that were responsible for getting those jets airborne. And that's just one day. And then if we talk about doing a large force exercise, you could have 60, 80 planes up in the air 
like it gets really expensive really quick. So you got to capitalize on those opportunities to get the training done. Take it seriously for sure. Yeah, it's, it's actually one of the the things that, you know, segueing back a little bit to, to bogey dope that we want to try to, to get across to at least the Air Force as a whole is if we can find a better way of keeping people in the Air Force that might not be active duty, that might be transitioning to more of a part-time gig in the Guard and Reserve, we can retain that experience and that talent in there instead of losing it altogether, maybe like you, and maybe if we found a better opportunity for you to stay, we would retain your years of experience because as the old phrase, phrase goes, how long does it take to replace 12 years of experience? Well, it takes 12 years. And so you can't replace a guy that's been flying fighters for 12 years and has put in all that effort and all that money has been dedicated to his training or her training. Um, and all of a sudden replace that with a brand new person, not a pilot training kind of thing that that's like me back in the day, barely knew how to start the damn thing. Right. And so it's a difference as far as how to maintain a certain level of lethality that if we can help people transition to the garden reserve and find a lifestyle that works for them <clears throat> while also serving their country, it's better for all of us. And it's a more lethal air force going forward. Yeah, no doubt. And you know, if I had to go back and do it again, I would do that exact same thing I did, right? The air force afforded me a lot of opportunities, gave me a lot of experience to go out and do what I'm doing now. And I'm thankful for that. In my humble opinion, which doesn't really matter because no one cares. <laughs> but I think the air force still has a really long way to go in order to, fix the fighter pilot crisis or fix the pilot shortage because, you know, it, the feel right at the bro level, it's ones and zeros, right? And there's not a lot of common sense applied. And again, there's a bureaucracy and there's a lot of layers and yada, 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 but there's a long way to go to fix it. The guard reserve allows that is a nice, I guess, bandaid to retain, not a bandaid, but it's a great way to retain that talent to transition into civilian life so you can be in one spot for the rest of your life. Your kids can go to the graduate from the same high school with their friends. You still can serve your country and you can go do whatever civilian job. So they got to, they got to fix that. And that I don't have all the answers, but I know that, that is a constant, that is a constant discussion and they're trying to figure that out. We'll see what happens because going that again, first C model guy on here, I feel like this really kind of started gaining momentum and it was out of the C model community. And I don't know if you can speak to it or not, but I think it was like six or seven different weapons school instructors that got tapped for a one year remote tour to Saudi Arabia and they're getting tapped via email. And you have an Air Force, a seven day option, which if you get an assignment, you're into your commitment, you can turn down that assignment, but you have to do it within seven days of that notification. Once you turn it down, you're done. You're getting out. So, Back up the story again, I might be getting it all right. Is person A, F 15 weapons instructor, right? 12 plus years of experience, and God knows how much money has been spent on him to make him a lethal killing machine. Gets the notice that he's going to Saudi Arabia. So says, Nope, no thanks. I'm going to transition out. He's probably flying in the guard. And then the system just kept tapping guys. And it took, I think, about two or three days before finally leadership got wind or someone caught on to the fact that. In a matter of like two days, we just lost six or seven really highly experienced guys. And there was no going back. Like you already said, F in front of mobs. There's no taking it back. Is that a true story? Or am I just making that up? Uh, I, I can't really speak to that personally, um, just because I don't know you know, who those guys were, the backstory there. I haven't really heard much about it. It, it certainly sounds accurate. You know, the, the more 
personal experience I have with that isn't personal for me, but personal with guys I fly with is something very similar is happening recently with the Marine Corps. And so we have as a squadron hired uh, several Marine Corps and Navy pilots recently, way more than we have in the past, primarily because there's a smaller pot of current qualified F-15 pilots to choose from the active duty to come over to the guard recently. But there's a lot of really good talent in the Navy Marine Corps that can transition as well. But in the Marine Corps, at least using some anecdotal evidence from the guys that we've hired, you know, if you get any of these guys, and this is probably true in the active duty Air Force as well, that even express a little bit of interest in going guard or going reserve and continue to serve their country, they're all of a sudden looked at with like these eyes of, I can't believe you don't want to be part of this team anymore kind of thing. When the reality is like, yeah, they're they're asking them to, to work 16 hours a day forever with no control of their life and no thanks on the back end. And then when they they're told that they want to continue to serve just in a different capacity, they're not exactly met with any sort of um, enthusiasm or any sort of, hey, whatever's best for you. Thanks for serving. Thanks for your your contribution and moving on. So I think if the active duty can figure out a way of rewarding talent uh, if you can, in some various way of combining talent and the the money that we've we've afforded these guys to sort of train and be these lethal killers that you're talking about with a quality of life that keeps them in and keeps them wanting to serve. Because if you ask any of these Marine Corps guys anyway, uh, those guys are, you know, Marine Corps dudes are hardcore dudes. And so they would have stayed in and continued to fly Hornets or F-35s in the Marine Corps as long as like the lifestyle was just a little bit better, like all they were looking for is just a little bit better. But when they're treated with sort of the mentality of, Hey, if, if you're not part of us, then get out completely. We don't want you. Thanks for nothing kind of thing. After you've served 10 years and gone to multiple combat deployments, uh, that's when guys are, are ready to make that transition and either get out entirely or come to the guard and reserve and try something completely different. And so, I think if leadership can figure that piece out, this is an amazing career. This is an amazing thing. As you know, flying for the airlines and me flying for the airlines, like nothing will ever compare to flying fighters. And so the job isn't the issue. It's the other things that you have no control of that are what will, will kick you out and go do something else. Yeah, I think too, I mean, being a fighter pilot, mission oriented, right? That's like my struggle. I would say, I don't know if it's a struggle in life right now, but yeah, it's making sure you have a purpose and a mission because, you know, my whole upbringing was mission focused and mission oriented, right? Getting to the objective, winning. Um, and now it's just different and in, in transitioning. And I think, you know, the Air Force, again, if I had to go do it again, I would do it, right? There's a lot of great things, but it's not, it's not a perfect organization. It comes down to the control. Like I know for me personally, getting out made sense, right? Because I looked at the next seven years of my life and there was no control. And different, I think, demographics today than the Air Force in the 60s and early 70s were most of the guys who were at their 12-year point were single or maybe they're single with no kids. Now, I think that is a higher percentage. And again, I don't have the number for it, but that's been one of the things that's been thrown out. But it's like, here's a factor. I got seven years where like I can deal with the flex and the pain and probably the bad deal, but I'm also subjecting my family to it as well. You know, like... If you got older kids, sorry, you're going to move schools four times in the next you know six years. And again, it changes. It depends. Every scenario is different. But the Guard and Reserve definitely afford opportunities to, I think, you know, stake a flag in the ground, serve your country, do some other things that might fit some some people better than others. 
The uh, as we kind of like wrap up here, I want to ask, uh, I guess, lead in too with or let you think about any highlights before we split for Bogey Dope. Before we do that, because again, that's really important. And I think bogeydope.com can be very helpful for anyone who's listening that wants to go out there and pursue some kind of career in the Guard Reserve. And again, I would stay tuned as they expand. But if you found 19-year-old slap walking on the street, is there anything or advice you would give him to change his path, recommendations, or tips? Yeah, I tell him a little bit earlier that he's not going to be a professional baseball player. So give it up <laughs> now and start looking for something else. Um, and then, and then that's actually about the, the age in which I got the bug. Like, like I said earlier, everyone gets a bug at a different age. Some people get the bug to want to serve and, and fly when they're little kids. Um, and for me, it was when I was 19. So when I was 19, it was when 9-11 happened. And so 9-11 was what sort of got me interested in wanting to serve and that kind of stuff. So really there was not a whole lot I would personally change back then because that is when I really got motivated to want to do this and, and wanting to fly fighters uh, was really sort of a turning point in my life in the sense that it gave me direction. I didn't know what I wanted to do before this. I was, you know, a relatively good kid, but at the same time, I didn't know what direction I want to go in. And once I realized that this is what I wanted to do for me, it was a very clear, like, all right, I need to do this. 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 And so that gaming direction throughout college of what classes to take, the grades I needed, how to do well on these tests, how to make sure that my cover letter and resume was good, how to start applying to these places. They will prepare for that. And so for any 19 year olds out there right now that are trying to figure out what they want to do, whether they want to be fighter pilots or heavy pilots or just serve as an officer in the military or really even enlisted in the military for that matter, um, there is some really good resources out there. Obviously, you know, shout out to bogey dope and putting that out there but but we also link to all sorts of other resources that are available there's really good forums that people get information and and just sort of figure out what it takes to reach your goal because the the sort of path is long so if you start it when you're 19 by the time you get to your 20 22nd birthday and you're able to start applying to these places because you got a college degree in hand dude, you're going to be in really really good shape if you're just sort of figuring out when you're 25 and now you realize that your college GPA was a part of that application process and you just slacked off the whole time <laughs> in college and you're like, holy crap, I hope my 2.5 GPA doesn't hurt me. Well, it will because the competition's super tight right yeah. now. And uh, those are kind of things that you don't need to be an engineer. You don't need to have some crazy complicated uh, degree like most pilots can barely do math. So don't worry about being a, yep. an astrophysicist to join the Air Force, but you do need a good GPA. You need to do well on the tests. You need to look polished. You need to be prepared. And so the sooner you can start that process, the better shape you're going to be in for whatever opportunity. And that's not just the Air Force, any opportunity uh, after college. So don't waste the opportunity now when you're 19 uh, trying to figure it out. Yeah, it happens fast. And that's what I think a lot of people don't realize is, man, like really high school, you're kind of setting yourself on the path and not that it's unrecoverable if you do something stupid or have bad grades, but just makes it tougher. Yep. Um, okay. So final parting shots, bogeydope.com. Is there any highlights you'd like to leave listeners with before we split? No, just check out the website. Uh, for those that are interested, we offer articles that will talk you all through the, the entering the, the guard and reserve or really the air force as a whole uh, as someone just getting fresh into pilot training. 
of someone that's wanting to transition from the active duty to the Guard and Reserve and anyone that's potentially thinking about transitioning from the military to the airlines. That's where our content is sort of focused right now. Uh, we also have a big map on the, the website that will show you where every current Guard and Reserve flying squadron is located. Uh, so you can get an idea of what the closest opportunity is to you and what kind of aircraft are available they might be interested in and where to start applying. Uh, and then the other big one is that we're going to have a job board up there. So any potential opportunities, whether that's UPT opportunities, rated opportunities, uh, or even air crew opportunities or non-pilots, uh, those positions that we know about will be posted there. And that's a good consolidated place to figure out where those uh, job postings are going to be. And then when you're ready to start the application process, we're here to help. So uh, we are a consulting company that will match you up with somebody that that is already in the career field that you might be interested in. We have tanker guys, fighter guys, uh, cargo guys, uh, spec ops guys that are available to talk to, to figure out what the career path is that you want and get your questions answered uh, and help you get your application ready and get you ready for any interviews, stuff that's out there. And then if we look forward to the future, now we're looking at how do we expand outside the Guard and Reserve? Because like I said earlier, this isn't for everybody uh, or people that try it may realize that they, for some reason, can't get into what they want. And so expanding to uh, active duty Air Force opportunities, Marine Corps, Navy, even Army, Guard and active duty uh, opportunities there, uh, and then expanding sort of the content that goes around that. So. You know, it's a side hustle for everyone that's working on the website and all the coaches and, and consultants that we have. And so uh, things don't always happen as fast as we wish they would if we were all working on this full time. But hopefully by the end of the year, uh, we're going to have a, a much broader library and content uh, suite uh, for anyone that's interested in joining um, the Air Force, either as an officer or pilot. Yeah, I think it's awesome. And I will say this too. Yeah, as I transition out of the Air Force into the airlines, I'm sure you kind of did the same thing going to the airlines. You paid consulting companies to help you polish the interviews or prep for testing and things like that. So sometimes it is tough to think about paying things up front. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things you're really preparing yourself for a multi million dollar career potentially, depending on how you go into it. So things to think about when it comes to hiring services, you get what you pay for. So, again, just pitch that to the, to the listeners as well. So slap. Thanks for joining me on the podcast, man. I really enjoyed talking to you and learn a little bit about the Eagle and then uh, about bogey do. Perfect. Thanks for having me.